human race. It's a right to have knowledge and access to knowledge. And I think that that is becoming more and more obvious. You know, if, if there was a simple solution to how we handle misinformation and finding and determining the truth, we would be doing that. But it is not simple and it's affecting our democracies. In this episode of Change the Narrative, I talk with Catherine Styler, CEO of Creative Commons, about who owns a story and who gets access to ideas, and the importance of open source resources. This is Change the Narrative, the podcast about innovation in work, life, and culture. I'm your host and tour guide, Michael Hernandez. This is one of my favorite hikes in Southern California, to the top of Mount Baldy, a 10,000-foot mountain about an hour east of downtown Los Angeles. Some friends and I bagged the peak recently, walking over eight miles up 3,900 feet of elevation through snow from a late spring storm. I needed that win, the views, the fresh air, and sense of accomplishment. Life during the past two years has been an uphill march through thin air too. I've been doing a lot of thinking about my value, my future, and my purpose in this space. Can I be effective if others lack the bandwidth or support from their community to digest new ideas and implement change? And how does our isolation from friends and colleagues, as well as people from diverse backgrounds, affect us? Maybe that isolation is based in our geographies or the limits of social distancing, access to accurate information, or maybe it's self-imposed. When we don't have a safe space to share information, when we keep ideas to ourselves or a small group of people around us, we miss out on skills and strategies that make us all better. We lose out on perspectives that can help us solve real problems that affect everyone. In my journalism class, I call it the nebula of truth, a way to get as many data points as we can in order to triangulate where the truth lies, whether it be climate change, solving social problems, or even the challenges in our own hearts. Catherine Styler OBE has been an international champion for openness as a legislator and practitioner for over 20 years. She was a member of the European Parliament for Scotland, representing the Labour Party. At the European Parliament, she became one of Scotland's longest serving and most respected legislators. In August 2020, Catherine was appointed Chief Executive Officer of Creative Commons, a nonprofit organization that helps overcome legal obstacles to advance better sharing of knowledge and creativity to address the world's pressing challenges. Catherine, it's such an honor to have you here. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's great to be here. I'm so excited. So, um, you know, last year, I guess Creative Commons celebrated its 20th birthday of its founding. And yes. this year you're celebrating the 20th anniversary of the Creative Commons licenses. Yes. For those of uh, us out here who are unfamiliar with the organization, can you share uh, why it was founded and a little bit more about the licenses and how you're advancing open access? Sure. Well, thanks so much for giving me the opportunity to talk about Creative Commons. And so, I mean, really, the idea that Creative Commons was founded upon was that online we were having problems sharing. It was about a model online of failed sharing. And what was created was a, a way of solving that particular problem at that time. That was really around music sharing online in the early 2000s. And so what was created was a different model. Rather than having an all rights reserved model of copyright, what we created was a some rights reserved copyright. The idea was that we would find a way through this problem to help 
people be able to legally share online? And so when we think about it, you know, um, that this idea really was was inspired by the value of making more creative works freely available on the internet and responding to a growing community at that time of bloggers and creators who were creating, remixing and sharing content, but often did not have that legal certainty. And so what the licenses provided was not just that they were machine readable, so technologically able to, to navigate this new space of the internet, but they were able to be used by by us all, and also were legally robust. So it was the legal, the human, and the technical that was the beauty of these licenses. And what's fascinating today, if we reflect upon it, is that 20 years on, they're just still so important to allow for legal sharing online when creators don't want just all rights reserved, which was the traditional model of copyright. But now we've created something of some rights reserved. And that allows people who want to share online be able to do that in a way that they as the creator have ownership over that. And I think that's what's so empowering about both the idea of Creative Commons and expanding this wonderful commons that is all of ours online globally, you know, sharing knowledge and culture for everyone everywhere. So, yeah, my, I'm so proud to be a part of this movement. And although I'm, as you rightly say, I've only been the CEO uh, for less than two years, but, you know, coming from a real appreciation of having access to knowledge and culture, I think sometimes we take it for granted that you can go online and you can do things and you can have that information. I keep thinking about my grandmother. <laughs> <laughs> no access and you know going to a library was you know a, a really important part of accessing knowledge when you couldn't afford a book and couldn't afford that um, those kind of things and so it's just it, it means a lot to me to run an organization where its purpose and sole raison d'etre is about free knowledge and culture for everyone everywhere and that better sharing agenda which is part of our new strategy. So coming from this career that you have of, yeah. you know, being very involved in legislation, how did you get involved with this organization? So where did I start? I mean, um, you know, my background, I, you know, I, I come from a, a, the industrial heartland of Scotland and in a place called Wishaw, which is in North Lanarkshire, it was used to be the steel industry, mining, and those things are no longer, you know, the access to knowledge and culture for me was exceedingly important as someone who my parents were teachers, but my grandmother was denied an education, had to go out and work when she was 14 because, you know, the, the, the economic circumstances. And that had a, a real impact on, on how I saw education, the value of that and accessing knowledge. So when I became, you know, had my career in the European Parliament, one of the things that presented itself um, was access to ebooks and libraries was becoming an issue. This was the kind of 2011, 2012 time. And I happened to run a little campaign. Uh, it was actually called the Open Knowledge Campaign. I can, you can make this up now, you know, 10 years on. <laughs> but but it, was a, it was a campaign about ebook access in public libraries. And I'll give you the story. It was, you know, here I, here I was as a Scottish legislator at the time, thinking about these issues. And it just so happened that one local authority in Scotland was absolutely, doing amazing things in this space and the question that came to me why is this one local authority able to have ebook access and and really empower people and and but others are not and it turned out that the librarian who was running this had, had come from a tech background had seen the opportunities was being innovative um 
you know, and you're like, well, if he can do this, why can't others do that? And it was so striking, Michael, that, you know, here was one local, and this was, it was a surprise because it's one of the poorest local authorities in Scotland able to deliver this. And yet a neighbouring local authority, when someone was coming in, you know, didn't even have Wi-Fi in the library and was saying to the people that were coming in, if you want Wi-Fi, go to the nearest McDonald's. And you're kind of like, this is, how can we have these two coexisting models? Mm-hmm. That is, so it led me into this campaign about ebook access, which then got me into, oh, hang on a minute. There's things going on with licensing. I think that was the first touch point of licensing. And then from that, I ended up leading for my committee in the European Parliament it was the Internal Market and Consumer Protection Committee, the work on copyright reform. And that was absolutely eye-opening. I mean, in the early 2000s, I was leading work against the tobacco industry in terms of um, graphic labels and cigarette packets and doing all this work on public health. And then entering this world of copyright, access to knowledge, making sure there is balance and fairness. I have never experienced a lobby particularly to do with the rights holders. It was quite extreme in terms of that power over a simple concept of getting a fair, balanced copyright reform in the European Parliament that served the interests of citizens uh, and as well as creators. And so that's how I got more and more involved I fought for a balanced copyright reform, which um, I think there's some aspects of the European reform that we got through was balanced, some of it, but certainly elements of it were far from that. And it was disappointing to see an opportunity loss where we could have done so much more. And therefore, that experience, coupled with um, you know coming out of the European Parliament, um, just got me on a journey to promote open knowledge, open content, seeing that balance of copyright rules and seeing that legal journey where those who have power to lobby seem to have so much more of a voice where civil society tended to not have the resources to be able to have the impact that others seem to have. And that to me, in a sense of somebody who believes in great justice and fairness, wanted to make a difference and to to see a better version of what um, could be but the wonderful thing about Creative Commons is that rather than getting, talking about issues, Creative Commons created an elegant solution to the problem that we were faced about field sharing online. And that is what is wonderful, having this responsibility over the tools that are enabling people across our world to be able to access knowledge and culture in, in legal certainty in a way that things can be shared, remixed, reused, redistributed. It's just a wonderful organisation to be part of because of it being solution driven. Hmm. That's really fascinating. I like how you've reframed this through the lens of a consumer protection. Yeah, it's, it's <laughs> um, you know, rather than like us, them, uh, a, yeah. a profit kind of motivation, which, you know, it is honestly, but like to reframe it this way, to think yeah. about uh, the good for the people rather yes. than the good for the few. Uh, I think that's really fascinating. Do you feel like your work uh, here at Creative Commons is sort of like a natural evolution of your work uh, that you were doing before in the parliament? It was so interesting because when, um, just reflecting on that, it's um, when we think about consumer protection, a lot of the debates I remember in the European parliament were around, 
well, if things went wrong, what are your rights? You know, what, what is your redress mechanism? If there's a dispute, what's in, especially online about online dispute resolution and 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 also just how do we share best practice? You know, you you know, how how do we understand what's working because culturally, and this is what's fascinating about you know, working in different cultures, working globally, what works maybe one place doesn't work in another for consumer protection um, issues. And so it's been really interesting when we think about knowing your rights, knowing, you know, what 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 can be. And that's what's lovely about the license is giving empowerment to a creator to be able to share on their terms with a suite of licenses that allow where your comfort zone is in sharing. You can you can put that there. But um I, I, I take the bit about consumer protection uh, quite seriously, as you can imagine. And, and, uh, and, and thinking about, you know, indi- the member states, individual consumer protection bodies, consumer protection laws, you know, how do we ensure in this really complex online environment that consumers know their rights and are protected online is really important. And when we see this with Creative Commons, how our licenses are used and how people are able to, um, to uh, use attribution to be able to make sure the creators uh, the, the rights are reflected is very important and so um yeah there's so much to, richness there and i think we're just even tapping on the bit of the surface of that to kind of think about in the next 20 and 40 years what that could possibly look like okay let me back up <laughs> we've, we've been talking about this concept of copyright um yes. What's the best way you found to describe this concept of copyright and maybe the difference between traditional copyright as we know it uh, and Creative Commons licensing? So I think when someone creates something, be that a video, research article or painting, that work is automatically copyrighted to that creator. And these protections are heavy duty so that others don't use your work without your permission, but not everyone needs or wants all those protections. So this is where Creative Commons comes in. So the licenses grant a set of permissions to creators of works from all rights reserved to some rights reserved. So the creator can choose the level of sharing they would like to give others so that works can be shared, used, remixed and built upon as long as they abide by the licensing terms. And I think that's really important part to this, that to have trust you have to abide by the license and that is really important. So this makes it easy to share work without giving up total control or spending countless hours granting permissions. So I guess what you were saying about consumer safety earlier, about making it easier for the consumer, making it easier. This is what was wonderful about the licenses was this elegant solution to a pressing problem and making that simple for the creator who was faced with the challenges, a simple, elegant solution and tool to use. But but the way we think about this is is open sharing is a type of social solidarity because the open sharing allows knowledge and culture to be shared by everyone, everywhere. And that's something that is so important in terms of fostering creativity, innovation, collaboration. Um, And open sharing also promotes diversity. And also because of the global nature of this, it's also addressing global collective challenges and something that has certainly emerged since, although it was certainly in, in in our thinking and is somebody that's a daughter of a geography teacher, certainly my thinking in the early 2000s about climate change and the climate crisis, but here's a pressing problem, a challenging problem that we're all facing. You know, if climate research was open 
more open, more shareable, more just think what we could do in the pandemic is illustrated why open sharing of research and knowledge is so important globally. And to cut down the barriers to that open sharing to be able to solve our world's pressing problems is so important today, even more important <laughs> uh, than maybe when we first created the, the problem. The problem then was music sharing. Well, today it's about actually you know, cross-border collaboration in terms of research. I think that, you know, the legal tools that we've created are important in our world today to be able to have that sharing that's necessary to solve the world's pressing problems. Yeah, it's really great. I've used some of those licenses myself and with, with my students. Yeah, yeah, with my students as well. So because my students create content, usually video content um and so just for everybody listening there's you should check out the creative commons site um there's varying licenses like you can give people permission to use it however they want as long as it's not for commercial purposes for example or you can use it to remix and people can edit it and change it or you can set the permission so that you can't change it um yeah. you can set it where you have to give um credit so yes. they know who the original creator was. Um, and there's a lot of flexibility in that, which I, I really appreciate as a, as a content creator myself. Because um, not all content creators are wanting the same thing. And so the thing with what we created was giving that flexibility and empowering and enabling creators to get that right. And because of our legal community globally that translated these and got them into own national laws, we were able then to have that global reach, um, something that started off as a pressing problem to solve a problem in, a, in America on music sharing ended up being a global you know, community, a global network. It was just something that you know, was so radical. It, today is still so valuable and still the radicalism is there with what we have done to reshape copyright. So this sounds like a, a really great win for audiences and consumers of content, um, yes. but help me understand a little bit more about sure. why a Creative Commons license is a good idea for content producers, because you know, I'm one myself and yeah. I'm you know, careful about uh, what I share and how much yeah. I share because so many yeah. of us you know, writers and artists and, and thinkers, scientists, um, rely on royalties and fees for our livelihood, yes. right? And, yes. um, and so help me understand how this is gonna help content creators. Sure. And I think that's, that's, that, that this is such an important question. I mean, it is possible to make money while using CC licenses and CC license content. And that's absolutely true. And if you want to reserve the right to commercialize your work, you may do this by choosing a license with a non-commercial condition. If someone else wants to use your work commercially and you've applied for the, the NC license, you must first get your permission. And as the rights holder, you may still sell your own work commercially. So you may... You know, you may also use funding models that don't depend on using an NC license. For example, many artists and creators use crowdfunding to fund their work before releasing it under a less restrictive license. And, and some examples of businesses and organizations that are kind of blazing a trail in this area include like Lumen Learning, helping educational institutions use open educational resources. You know, the Open Data Institute, connecting people to innovate with data, you know, a tribe of noise, an online music platform serving the film, TV, video gaming and and in-store media industries. And so, you know, the beauty of Creative Commons was that absolute reach and touch points with those who are maybe, you know, like yourself, who are, you know, um, you know, making a living out of something, 
to those who are maybe more hobbyists, who are wanting to do something for the pleasure, the joy. You know, it's in a remarkable toolkit serving those where they are at, not about imposing something, but enabling to do with what they want. It's a tool in the toolkit to be able to share legally online and make sure that that voice that you want heard is heard in the way that you desire. I love that. Um, having the control over the copyright, because it's usually yeah. the lawyers or the you know, whoever's setting the legislation <laughs> is in charge of that, right? Yeah, and it's so daunting for people. I mean, if you are an ordinary artist who are trying to, to do things and or even a teacher trying to navigate an online classroom or a, my dad was a teacher, my mom was a teacher. So I'm really aware of that kind of educator space. Creative Commons touches them in different ways, but fundamentally, Creative Commons is enabling people in their day-to-day life. The, the great challenge I have is that often Creative Commons licenses are quite invisible to people. And therefore, one of the challenges and kind of opportunities I have as the CEO of Creative Commons is to make the invisible visible, to explain why this is important as an enabler and why we need to make sure that this public interest technology that was created 20 years ago is still invested in, is still valued, is still stewarded responsibly to enable more content sharing in the next 20, 40, 100 years. So uh, it's interesting that you mentioned uh, teachers and educators, and yeah. as someone who works in that space, uh, you know, I hear a lot of myths and rumors and misperceptions about what copyright is and sure. what fair use is and things like that. And, yeah. you know, I've heard people say that it's legal to use the first two bars of a song, for example, if they're creating yeah. a video or up to 30 seconds of a movie or, you know, that even teachers and students can use them as long as it's for a school project, which of course is not true. Um, in most cases. So yeah. what are some of the wildest stories you've heard about people's misperceptions about copyright? So firstly, Michael, I mean, we are talking about um, fair use and, 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 and this is interesting because this is very much about the United States, you know, and, and the EU is slightly different, but well, quite different. But let's take, you know, if you, when we're talking about fair use in the US, the doctrine fair use allows users the right to use a copyrighted work under which certain conditions without permission of the copyright owner. So conditions might include if it's for commercial use, criticism, commentary, news reporting, teaching, scholarship or research. There is a misconception that up to 10% of a work can be taken without risking copyright infringement. And copyright is deemed to be infringed by any person who, without the copyright's owner's consent, does anything that only the owner has the right to do. So taking a substantial part of a work is one type of infringement. And what constitutes the taking of a substantial part of a work is different depending upon the type of work in question. So, for example, the lyrics and melody of a short refrain in a song may constitute far less than 10% of the musical work, but the taking of it without consent could well constitute an infringement. However, by licensing work with Creative Commons licenses, it allows creators to retain their copyright, but also gives them the choice of how they want to share their work. So it's a very apt question, and one which, again, illustrates just the complexity of the law and how the law, both in the US and the EU and other parts of the world, is complex to those who just want to get on with things and share. The beauty of Creative Commons licenses is that it's an elegant solution to that complexity, allowing that legal certainty 
the technological robustness and that kind of human ability to be able to use them as long as the as the the licenses are obeyed by so there's something there there's something about um you know distilling that complexity into this elegant solution that we all can use across our world today yeah it's definitely complex and uh, I'll, <laughs> I'll be sure uh, for all of my educator uh, audience members I'll be sure to share some resources for how to really? use copyrighted material in the classroom for sure that's um, great um, so I'm really interested in this quote that I heard a while back and I think it was Picasso that once yeah. said that good artists borrow great artists steal yeah. right great artists steal um, I like that quote a lot because it debunks this myth of the artist as a lone genius working in a vacuum, you know, and it kind of acknowledges the fact that all creative work is built on the shoulders of others, right? So, I mean, you think about the techniques that are developed by people who come before you um, and arts made by others that influences and inspires your own work, right? It just kind of sort of enters the bloodstream of your project. Um, but I also see his quote as sort of an acknowledgement that great ideas develop through a sort of creative dialogue between thinkers or artists throughout time, right? Um, and so what happens uh, to this dialogue of ideas uh, when they're artistic, scientific, or social, what happens when we erect legal barriers around them and limit access to who can see or use them? I, th I think that's a, a, a great, um, great question. And I wish Picasso had actually said, good artists borrow, great, great artists share. <laughs> I, think, I think that would have been a, because um, the word steal is, is, is quite a tricky one. But anyway, yeah. um, uh, you know, Picasso is Picasso and I'm just a, a, a mere mortal. But, um, <laughs> uh, but you're absolutely correct that creativity and innovation is built incrementally. And also all knowledge is built on other parts of knowledge, isn't it? I mean, that's, that, that, this is amazing, right? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, the greatest, you know, thinkers understood this. And when I worked in, in the European Parliament, um, we'd go every month, one week of the month, to Strasbourg. And in Strasbourg, there's a Place, Place Gutenberg. It, you know, Gutenberg, Strasbourg, the printing press. Mm -hmm. And so there's a huge statue to Gutenberg. You know, I'd walk past this, you know, once a month, you know, you'd look up at it and you're thinking, you know, Gutenberg, one of the most important, you know, uh, inventions. How did he get the ideas from that? How did he invent that? Well, he got his inspiration from looking at viticulture, from wine pressing, from, and you're kind of, you know, that knowledge then allowed the knowledge for that time to then go and probably, you know, create one of the most important inventions, <laughs> you know, uh, in terms of the printing press. And so, you know, these, the, you scratch the surface at these great ideas and where they come from and how things are created. And you see time and time again, that, that this, you know, knowledge built on knowledge, knowledge shared then impacting and, and, you know, and, and it's, you know, we sit, you know, kind of, us talking through Zoom and on the, you know, on the internet. Where did that come? That came from public created research, and you know, and and so, um, you know, we have to really think about how um, how creativity, innovation, and most importantly, human progress can be um, supported and aided. Uh, in a way where sharing and open sharing can be best supported. Because what strikes me time and time again is where is the public interest in our debates currently when it comes to 
the internet, the web, you know, so much of what we've seen in the past decade has been around pl- the platformization and, and people are sharing, but it's sharing in a business model, not sharing to really develop what is addressing our, you know, current problems, but also the way that we can create and have creativity in ways which can help, again, improve our lot as humanity. And, and so these are some questions. If we really are going to support public interest technology, how can we best do that in the world of today, not 20 years ago? You know, I think that copyright at the moment, the way things are going in the past 20 years of regulation, seems often to do the opposite. I sat in the European Parliament and we were talking about investing billions in our research programme, but yet on the other hand, we were introducing copyright regimes which were going to stifle that very research. We said we wanted to innovate and create new businesses and empower, but the copyright regime was going to do something quite different. And so how do we get all of this to work together? How do we get it to be, I kept saying, balanced? We are challenged today with the copyright regimes, whether it's in the US, the EU, across the world, which don't seem to be going forward, seem to be going backward. And we need, as a civil society, as public interest, to be more vocal and more confident and bold about why this is vital for the public good and for the public interest. Right, that's a really great point. And I'm thinking about the stakes right now uh, yes. with you know perceptions of yes. historical events um, yes. and with COVID, right? Um, and so what's interesting is I have a fascination with this idea of, of copyright as sort of a paywall, right? For information, yeah. right? Um, yeah. And a paywall for ideas. So it's not just about art, art and music and fiction. It's also about scientific discoveries and research like you were talking about. And so we've seen during the pandemic, like a lot of news organizations making COVID related coverage free to everyone yes. instead of having to have a subscription to their, their newspaper, because it's really a matter of public safety to have a well-informed yes. public, right? Yes. Um, and so going back to your consumer protection background, um, it seems like these two things are really interwoven really closely. Um, what are some other ways open source ideas and information can benefit society, especially in a world filled with misinformation? Because I feel like this openness to information in the terms of journalism and other things is, um, is really critical to our understanding of public safety. It, it, it is. And, you know, we're, we've been very lucky recently to do um, work on, on, with journalists about Creative Commons and how we can empower journalists by using our tools as well. And I think that's really something that wasn't evident maybe a few years ago and now is really evident. But maybe take the, the issue you just described about the importance of tackling misinformation, disinformation, and how how do we determine that? And I'm speaking to you before, Michael, but, you know, as someone who has lived through, you know, the Brexit referendum in the United Kingdom, having and, and more particularly being a member of the European Parliament for Scotland, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, Scotland who didn't vote to uh, leave the European Union, um, whose identity is very much, you know, part of a European ideal and watching that, you know, misinformation lies in a red bus um seeing you know about the NHS and and seeing all of that but that just didn't happen overnight you know that happened decades and decades and decades and and so how are we tackling this issue of 
the speed that misinformation is shared, but acknowledging that misinformation does have always been there. Um, we always love the story about the, 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 you know, was it the 17th century pamphleteer that had about a dragon let loose in East Sussex and, you know, and, and that was distributed and, 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 and it wasn't a dragon that had been let loose. It was a cobra from a, of a, from a circus that had been going around the villages and, and all of a sudden the cobra had become a dragon. And, and you see this in, um, you know, that's one thing from 17th century pamphleteering, but um, I, I saw so much when I was a member of the European Parliament in terms of Brussels myths. And I'll share with you an example, which was we were, we were doing a piece of law um, to help protect workers in noisy environments was the noise directive and it had regulations to help and very sensible, some, you know, very sensible to have rules for workplaces. But somehow this got spun in a Scottish context that the noise directive was going to ban the Scottish bagpipes. And, and musical uh, instruments were exempt. Well, there's a few in the front page of many papers that, that these MEPs in Brussels were about to ban the bagpipes. Now, I mean, <laughs> true, not true, but, but what, a, what a great story, you know, what a headline, what a... And, you know, that obviously got through an editor, you know, What's going on online where things are not being edited, where things are not being, you know, it's, it's, um, it's a challenge. And in a US context, it's an even greater challenge because of the First Amendment, you know. And, and, mm-hmm. and I think, um, you know, one of the responsibilities I think we all have individually is before we, you know, before we share something maybe online that we're maybe not too sure of, double check what you're sharing and having that responsibility. Our latest strategy at Creative Commons, one of the, the key themes that's come out is about better sharing. Because I want people to be able to share. I want people to be able to share information. And but how can we do that better? How can we as individuals be responsible and to think? How can we even think about how you know, that, you know, something that, that keeps coming back to is how, you know, in the US you've got civics education, which is something, you know, we don't really have that, certainly in the UK or, you know, in the EU, in, in such a way of thinking about your your rights as a, a citizen and bringing law into that at a very early age, which I think is really interesting because knowing your rights, knowing your responsibilities, knowing, you know, it's a two-way thing, isn't it? Rights and responsibilities. You know, if, if there was a simple solution to how we handle misinformation and finding and determining the truth, we would be doing that. But it is not simple. And like copyright, there's a complexity to this. But where I see Creative Commons playing a part is that in terms of how we're thinking about sharing, how we're thinking about a very nascent campaign at the moment around a better internet, I think we can play a part to think about solutions to that, just as we did with licenses. And I don't have all the answers, Michael, but I'm certainly thinking a great deal about the responsibility we all have, but also how public the responsibility public interest technology can have in addressing some of these key problems. Um, and it's global. You know, it's not just we're all in this and it's affecting our democracies. And I think anyone that cares about democracy in our various countries wants to find ways that we can challenge the misinformation with but at the same point it's making sure 
that people have facts, that people have the truth that's not hidden behind any paywall, but is actually accessible. And that's important in the world that we're in. It's really fascinating. I was reading something recently about Wikipedia, which I believe yeah. has a Creative Commons license. They use Creative Commons licenses. Is that mind correct? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, and everybody knows it's like a crowdsourced kind of place. And Early on, um, it was sort of dismissed as an untrustworthy kind of source, right? Because it wasn't coming from a scholastic or or yes. professional background, right? Um, and now that's shifting a little bit uh, in academia. And because you have so much open access to what's being posted that you have crowdsourced uh, corrections from the academics who yes. actually know what they're talking about that can tamp down the disinformation that's out there, right? Uh, or inaccuracies. And so I find that really fascinating because for me, it's kind of like this old idea of, again, whether it's you know corporate ownership of research or ideas um, and moving into the hands of the public, right? Um, yeah. Yeah. And going back to our earlier conversation here about COVID research, for example, yes. you know, so much of the research was done with publicly funded scientific research. Yes. And these pharmaceutical companies were taking that research and that I, those ideas. And now they have patented many of those ideas based on that publicly funded knowledge. So yes. it's sort of interesting in, in the capacity of public health. Um, yes. But clearly all these other things, like you're talking about civic engagement, yes. you know, the, the public security of having a, like a safe um, respectable professional government, right? And making policies based on fact and researched information and access to the information is so vital. So it's sort of like physical public health and civic, <laughs> civic health are kind of interlinked because through this concept of, of shared ideas and information, right? Because it's, it affects everyone. Affects everyone. And it's, I mean, I, I, I got to go to COP26 in Glasgow, you know, the, the, the climate summit and, you know, if ever there's a pressing problem about sharing, it's about how we share climate data. And I'm, I'm proud that at the moment we're working um, with Spark North America and IFL at Creative Commons to, uh, and we've been funded by the Open Society Foundation to do this for a year, um, to look at, you know, climate data and biodiversity and think really seriously about how we can share that critical information more openly. And, you know, it's striking that you can you can have all these lovely ideas, but if you can't share the climate data, if you can't share the climate research, then how are we as humanity going to solve this very pressing problem that impacts on each one of us on a day-to-day -day basis? If we're going to understand that more and we're going to understand how we're going to address some of this, we need to share knowledge, research and information. You mentioned Wikipedia. Um, I was very grateful a couple of weeks ago to meet the, the new uh, chief executive of, of, of Wikipedia, Mariana. And, you know, the, the, the vision that they're seeing now is fascinating because human rights, it's a right to have knowledge and access to knowledge. And I think that that is becoming more and more obvious as we see more barriers to knowledge at a time where we need to share knowledge to be able to solve humanity's most pressing problems. There's hope because we know that there are things that we can do to solve some of these problems. We just have to have both the political will and the interest in the public good to be able to share that, come together and solve those problems. I hear you're working on a project right now with Google about open source journalism. Can you tell yes. me a little bit about that? 
Sure. So, um, you know, we're thrilled to partner with the Google News Initiative on the project to launch our open journalism webinar series and training. As you, as you might know, Michael, we've got we've been um, we've got a, a CC Cert training program, which has been mainly for educators and librarians and for the like the Open Glam community, Glam being galleries, libraries, archives, and museums. And so, um, we've started this ground truth in open internet webinar series and training and uh, if any of your listeners are interested please come along you know the the webinars are, are openly accessible and and the recordings are too but we also so we've got a six-part series which is examining the challenges and working models for information sharing based on the ideals of an open internet and this was created after surveying over 500 journalists from 18 countries to really better understand um, their needs and desires. So because Creative Commons is dedicated to helping build and sustain a thriving commons of shared knowledge and culture, we work towards developing solutions and advocating for better open sharing of knowledge and culture that serves the public interest. And we've been talking about that. But since journalism provides such a critical and crucial public service and access to verifiable informations and stories that question the underlying terrain of power. It's, and it's so critical to democratic society. It just seems natural that Creative Commons would be involved in some way in this space. And, and so this work that we're doing in, in, in this open journalism series touches on many of the concerns about today's internet. So many citizens are rightly concerned about com companies accumulating vast amounts of economic power and personal data. And it's, you know, the internet's recent innovations and in our, our democracies are, are even more worrying. And we just touched upon that. So there's something at the moment which is unsettling, but where I think that we have a part to play in helping navigate some of these stormy waters, but equally thinking about how Creative Commons and through open journalism has a part to play in being able to share, openly share information and uh, share knowledge for the public good. Oh, that's incredible. <laughs> Where does it end? <laughs> <Thank> you. <laughs> so I much feel, going on. I feel on. so blessed, Michael, because it's, uh, you know, as someone who, you know, went to a comprehensive school in Coltness High School in Wishaw in North Lanarkshire to, to now be in California running a global not-for-profit, uh, you know, and, 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 and trying to make a difference is a privilege and an honour. And I am so grateful to have this opportunity to make a difference. I tried to do that 20 years as a politician and did my bit and pieces there. And it's wonderful now to have this new opportunity to make a difference in this global setting, um, which is going to hopefully help, help us all. Yeah, it's fantastic. I really, <laughs> I really appreciate it. And I know you've definitely helped me and my students. So, so thank you Thanks, for that. Michael. Yeah. Oh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a privilege and a pleasure and anything we can do to help. So where can people connect with you and find out more about your work? Sure. So you, you, you mentioned the website. So please come, come on, on to, to that. We're clearly, um, you know, on social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, we have a, um, a, a podcast, our, our Open Minds podcast. So please tune into that. Subscribe to our newsletter. Come and join our global network. Uh, come and attend our global summit. Take, you know, part in our webinars, which are um, advertised through our website and uh, through our social media. And uh, be part of this wonderful movement, which is creating a global commons for everyone everywhere. You're so welcome. And uh, it's yours, you know, it's all of ours. It belongs to us all. It's wonderful. 
Catherine Styler, thank you so much for this great conversation. Uh, you really illuminated a lot of really important facts here, and I'm just so honored that you uh, are speaking on this on this topic. And and oh. I really appreciate the work that you're doing at Creative Commons. Oh, thank you so much, Michael. And uh, let's keep in touch. You can find out more about Creative Commons licenses, the United Nations Open Education Resources, and the Open Journalism Project on our website, changethenarrative.net. You know, I don't think people want to be preached to, but I do think people want to have an under, a better understanding of the world through empathy. The idea that, like, you're going to fall in love in Paris comes from storybooks, right? That's what I kind of want to do. Like, I want to give us the same sort of, uh, you know, dignity as those kinds of places that get so much hype. Next time on Change the Narrative, award-winning writer and producer Eric Galindo talks about his podcasts, TV shows, and screenplays, and why representation in stories matters. Change the Narrative is written and produced by me, Michael Hernandez. If you like the podcast, rate us and write a review. It helps people find us. And don't forget to subscribe to our newsletter. You can find details on our website, changethenarrative.net. Change the Narrative.